Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast and now vlog. Uh, some of you have been subscribed for a while, like 46 of you. Thanks for sticking in there. There's only been a little bit of content uh, on the YouTube channel. To be honest, I'm not sure which direction I'm going to go with it. Um, we'll see how it goes. There's, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not the most tech savvy, uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I'm going to try to put a little bit more content out here on the uh, on the YouTube channel to see if I can ramp that up a little bit since some of you have said you really want video. So I'll have audio exclusive, video exclusive, and then I may capture the audio from this and throw it onto the podcast. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, if you appreciate this, please consider, consider contributing to the blog. Right now I'm working uh, with my standard uh, microphone and my, uh, my little Logitech tiny little webcam. Uh, so we'll see if we can get a little bit of technology upgrade. The other problem I have, and you're going to see it a little bit right now, is that the camera is up here when I'm looking at you. My text that I read from is down here, so I'm sorry if I'm not looking at you in the video. I don't know how some of you how some of you do it uh, if you just wing it and can look at the camera the entire time. That's not me. I need I need the the data and the and the text in front of me. So. Sorry, I'll you know I'll try to switch back and forth as much as I can. I'm not trying to break eye contact with the camera or anything. Um, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, in this episode, I am going to be responding to, or actually, I'm starting a uh, video series responding to John Loftus's new book that he is editor of that he's put out, The Case Against Miracles. It came out this past November. Uh, end of November, so uh, relatively new. I got an advanced copy uh, from uh, an old friend of mine, David McAfee. Some of you will know uh, he and I have been sparring partners for years. My only published work is a review of his book, a rather critical review of his book. Uh, but he's a nice guy. We've always stayed on cordial terms. Some people think that we don't get along with how much we used to disagree, uh, but it's always been cordial. He's always been actually a very nice guy. Um, and every now and then, because he's an editor, at the, uh, he's one of the, I think he's one of the editors for the publisher. Um, so he asked me if I wanted to have an advanced copy uh, and, and do a little bit of a review. So uh, I was trying to get some of this out before the book came out, but I'm just going to start going through it now. Um, there's going to be one episode per section. Um, and I have some friends lined up to come in and join and help out with some of these reviews. So some of you, uh, the, you know, one of the, the big ones is going to be, uh, Mike, um, uh, Michael from uh, Inspiring Philosophy. So he's going to come, uh, and join me for, uh, a few of the chapters, uh, or all of the chapters. I don't, I don't know. Uh, we're going to try to get some things scheduled in the new year. Uh, but he's definitely going to be joining on, uh, to deal with some of these, these philosophical questions and some of the chapters, um, that go through. But to get the, 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 the series started, I'm going to dive in and deal, um, with the preface and the introduction here. Um, so this is uh, based on my reading of the preface and the introduction. Uh, I'm not going to be, because I'm not responding to a video, there's not going to be audio clips. I'm not going to be reading large sections of it. Uh, I'm going to try to give an adequate enough picture of what's said and what I'm responding to. So hopefully it's fair and charitable. Um, I don't know John Loftus. I don't know um, 
any of the contributors. I have no personal anything against them. I'm just going to be dealing with the content uh, here that they put out in the book. So uh, with that, let's just jump right in. So the first section here is the foreword written by uh, Michael Shermer. Um, the foreword actually functions more like a um, an introduction part one. It it actually conveys content and argumentation. Uh, it's not really a foreword to a book. So um, when you're talking about a foreword, normally um, a foreword is something that talks about the the genesis or the purpose, um, some of the limitations of what's going to be talked about, what the you know some of the topics that it's going to cover. Um, some, it's going to give some acknowledgments and some, uh, some, you know, some indebtedness to those who have helped, uh, on the project. It, it doesn't really de it's, a forward isn't supposed to be a standalone argument. It's not supposed to make a case for something. It's not supposed to actually be advancing, uh, the thesis of the book, uh, in the forward. That's just not what a forward is. So this forward actually is like an introduction part one. For whatever it's worth, I, you know, I don't want to be too pedantic. So they call it a forward because they, you know, they're, they're sticklers, you know, for form and they want to keep that in there. It's not really a forward. It's not a substantive critique. I'm just letting you know when you, if you're coming to this book, read the forward. There's actually content in there. It's not, um, the forwards you just kind of often skip through because you want to get to the actual content of the book. Um, the structure of it. So, um, it compares, confirmation bias uh, um, to a phone call, the, the kind of, oh, well, you know, uh, you were thinking about your Aunt Jane and your Aunt Jane calls you. Um, and so therefore you think, oh, well, you know, it was predestined that my Aunt Jane call me. There's some type of uh, miracle that happens there. Um, so Shermer is, is, is starting to already kind of give some uh, some some objections to some of these colloquial uses of the of the term miracle um, that come up um, and he says he says a lot of it just counts for confirmation bias we'll keep talking about that as we go uh, but the, he also moves into a more colloquial use of miracle as something that's just an improbable event um, now Thankfully, he admits that this isn't what most Christians mean, um, and and so he kind of bypasses that. Where we're, we're not all just talking about like, oh well, the birth of a child. We colloquially say the birth of a child is a miracle, but we all also understand the natural processes that go into it. We don't actually mean that it's that it's a that it's a you know the the birth itself is some type of divine special ex nihilo event um, that wasn't. What uh, wasn't possible by by natural processes? We understand that God uses means, so he, he admits that that's not what most Christians mean. Uh, he also complains that that when when Christians talk about and the Bible talks about signs and wonders, um, that that really could apply to anything, uh, even non miracle or uh, ordinary um, uh, non miraculous events. And so he he wants to talk uh, and make the difference between ordinary and extraordinary. Events and he you know he says something like if everything is a miracle then nothing is a miracle and he says that equivocates between signs and wonders and a miracle um, here the problem just is that often when uh, a Christian or the Bible is talking about signs and wonders it's not necessarily the event itself is a supernatural event. I mean, uh, a, a sign and wonder um, could be, you know, certain um, astral signs. So we in, in the New Testament, um, the wise men saw 
the Magi saw the stars in the heavens and that indicated to them uh, that the, the Messiah had been born and the location. And so they so they traveled. It doesn't mean that the constellation ordering was, you know, God had rearranged the, the structure of the stars right away. It was that these 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 certain natural events, when conjoined in a certain time frame, timeline in conjunction with another event um, are are are, are a signpost for something they have they have significance and meaning not necessarily supernatural origin so uh, so that's important um, to discuss and he and he brings this up in in the forward he then pushes the the idea that that uh, how Hume defines a miracle that miracles just are a violation of the law of nature uh, and he gives this long quote he gives he gives Hume's maxim I'm going to read you Hume's maxim. It's a little bit long, uh, but it's important for the discussion. This is, this is Hume's maxim. It comes from his work on miracles. The plain consequence is, and is a general maxim worthy of our attention, that no testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish. When anyone tells me that he saw a dead man restored to life, I immediately consider with myself whether it be more probable that this person should either deceive or be deceived or that the fact which he relates should really have happened. I weigh the one miracle against the other and according to the superiority which I discover, I pronounce my decision and I always reject the miracle. If the falsehood of the testimony would be more miraculous than the event which he relates, then and not till then can he pretend to command my belief or opinion. End quote. In summary, he says that basically any natural explanation is intrinsically more plausible than any supernaturalistic explanation because the falsity of the supernatural, the, 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 the probability that the person is deluded or deceived or is deceiving you is just intrinsically more probable than any supernatural explanation would be. And so the, the, the core of Hume's maxim is just that any naturalistic explanation is intrinsically more plausible than any supernatural explanation. And if he can ever be given a case where that isn't the case, an instant where that isn't the case, then and only then would he think that there's reason to believe that there's a miracle. Now, Shermer and other online infidels show that they really probably haven't studied Hume or rather the Humean literature and scholarship, uh, they probably haven't done much direct study. Shermer says, quote, in the two and a half centuries since Hume wrote this passage, we've learned much about deception and self-deception from the study, of, fi uh, study uh, of human perception, memory, and cognition, especially the plethora of cognitive biases that distort our picture of reality. So Hume's maxim is even more supported today than it was in his time. Now, Shermer makes zero, I mean no mention uh, to his audience that there's, been, that there's been any scholarly criticism of Hume in the last two and a half centuries, which there has a ton of it. I mean, mountains and mountains of it, countless scholars, by the way, secular and atheist scholars have come to reject Hume for numerous reasons. Uh, John Earman is, is just one example. He's not, a, he's not a Christian philosopher. He's an agnostic philosopher. He wrote a book called Hume's Abject Failure, which he goes into this. There's, there's tons of problems with Hume's work on miracles. And, and his work on induction, and especially when you put them together. Um, there, there's, there's some problems like a question begs the definition of miracles as a violation of the laws of nature. 
why should anyone accept that as a definition? I, I mean, I don't. There are many, many Christian philosophers who don't. That, that just question begs what the, what the definition of a miracle even is. It question begs a naturalistic epistemology. It assumes a certain view of reason, rationality, logic, probability, plausibility that's only possible on a naturalistic epistemology. Which, so that's just question begging. We, if, if it requires that for his maxim to be true and his maxim leads to naturalism, then, then there's, there's no reason to accept it. Uh, another reason is it relies on the very kind of induction that Hume himself has problems with. So you have to remember that, that half of the thing, problem with miracles is that he makes this whole case that we cannot accurately rely on induction. I can't actually, just because all my past experiences have been that the cue ball, when it hits a billiard ball, that it moves... Just because that's always been the case in the past, there's this there's a problem of induction that I can't always say that that will happen in the future or that that actually is the cause just because they've always corresponded together. So he denies induction. But in order for his claim on miracles to happen, he has to have induction. He, he's relying on past improbable miracle claims that have shown to be false in the past. And so therefore, going in the future induction, he relies on the very thing that he's already denied. Um, so it's internally inconsistent with his own epistemology. It also creates an epistemology that's unfalsifiable. And I've argued this in the blog and on the podcast many times. So imagine I go to an atheist and I ask, what evidence then could ever be presented that could falsify naturalism if any, excuse me, any natural claim is presupposed to be intrinsically more plausible than any supernatural one. Think about it for a second. Imagine they said, well, uh, I would accept the stars rearranging in the sky. Well, would you? If any naturalistic explanation is intrinsically more plausible, why would that? Why would the stars re re rearranging in the sky saying Yahweh did this, would that lead you to say, therefore God exists? Why wouldn't you say, okay, well, there's a whole bunch of possible naturalistic explanations. Maybe it's you know, quantum weirdness. Maybe our minds are just pattern forming machines and we're just seeing patterns that aren't really there. Maybe there's alien, you know, super powerful alien pranksters that are able to do it. Uh, maybe we are engaging or experiencing mass hallucinations. Maybe we're experiencing delusion. Maybe we're brains and bats. Maybe this is just given the amount of time in, in uh, a quantum ruled cosmos. This is just the kind of thing that happens, and it doesn't actually say Yahweh did this. We just perceive that pattern. Starts. There's all kinds of naturalistic explanations. Or my personal favorite is the, well, it's more humble to say we don't know. Hopefully science will find out one day than to appeal to a grand sky daddy. Why wouldn't any of those, if naturalistic explanations are intrinsically more plausible than supernatural ones, what evidence could possibly be given to falsify that naturalistic epistemology? Clearly nothing, because it sets the boundary such that any evidence would be more plausibly explained on their own position, thus making it unfalsifiable. Um, so really, a position that is unfalsifiable is not veridical. Uh, and so it, it, it causes a problem that way. Um, so, that, I mean, this, this comes about, Hume, Hume shows this. He says, de deception is always more likely uh, than anyone actually having observed a miracle. 
right? So no matter what the evidence is, deception is always just intrinsically more plausible. Whatever the reason for the deception, whether it's hallucinations, aliens, kind of weirdness, we don't know, science, what, whatever the explanation is, some form of deception is always intrinsically more plausible. Um, it just makes a, an unfalsifiable position. And so there's, there's been all of these critiques of Hume that Shermer either is entirely unaware of, which is scary considering he's, you know, one of the leading voices of atheism and skepticism. Uh, but it's also, if he does know about it, uh, it's somewhat disingenuous to not mention any of that um, in, in propping up Hume as the prime example uh, of, of someone who rejects miracles. Shermer then goes on to give another definition of miracles from an atheist philosopher named David Kyle Johnson. Uh, David Kyle Johnson defines a miracle as, he says, uh, quote, a miracle is simply an event caused by God. Uh, Johnson further explains, he says, for any given event, if we knew that God took special care to cause it, we would and should call that event a miracle, regardless of whether it involved the violation of natural law, end quote. Now, I actually rather like that definition. Uh, I would nuance it a little bit differently, but I think that's probably pretty close to, to what uh, a biblical definition of a miracle would be. That is, that is any event that is directly uh, and specifically caused by God. Uh, we, we would properly call that a miracle if we knew uh, that God took special care to cause it. Um, whether or not it was a violation of the natural law, God could intervene by, uh, via natural means and cause something to uh, to be. That, that's perfectly fine. Shermer, on the other hand, he gives this example, right? He appeals to this this actual atheist philosopher, a real a real philosopher with real pedigree, and he doesn't think it adequately distinguishes between a natural and a supernatural event. Uh, he doesn't want to allow the broader definition that's actually accurate to biblical Christianity and what we mean. He wants to constrain it to be only supernatural causation apart from any natural means whatsoever. Right? This, this, is, this is just an ad hoc attempt to win the debate by definitional fiat. Right? And we just shouldn't allow him to do that. He's trying to control the debate by controlling the terms. Uh, and he's trying to control the debate by controlling the terms for what other people can mean by it. Well, if you want to engage with, with uh, you know, a biblical Christian understanding of miracles, maybe use our concepts. Just a thought. Um, there's, a, there's another definition that's given by Loftus. Loftus says, quote, a miracle is a supernaturally caused extraordinary event of the highest kind, one that's unexplainable and even impossible by means of natural processes alone, end quote. Shermer doesn't give any really follow-up comment on that. He just stated that he prefers it. Okay, so what? You prefer that definition. I don't. I don't think many Christian philosophers were. I don't think that's you know that's accurate to what the biblical teaching of what a miracle is. Again, trying to win the debate by by ad hoc definitional fiat just is is a, a rather poor way to try to engage in in reasonable dialogue. It, it is literally a, a kind of question begging straw man where you're saying, okay, well, I'm going to define a miracle this way for you, and so therefore, if I tear this down, all miracle claims are false. That's just not how reason and rationality works. He next moves on uh, to the question of what is truth, which is a rather strange movement at this point in the book. The book is 600. Uh, he says the book has 600 pages. It actually has 574. 
So does he think that approximations can be truthful when stated as absolutes? Right? He, he's, he's trying to talk about truth and he says the book has 600 pages. The actual number of, of, of pages in the book is 574. So the, the, there's, now some of you might be like, oh, well, Tyler, that's being petty. I understand. I'm not saying therefore he's lying or therefore he's wrong or anything like that. But it raises a philosophical question of what do you mean by truth? What counts as truth? Can an approximation, even though it's not technically true, can it be a true statement? He says 600 pages. We understand that he's rounding. It's, it's, it's an approximation to what it is. It's a true statement. We're not gonna, we're not gonna hold his feet to the fire. And so the question is, what actually is True. This actually comes as a hermeneutical question and implications for how they handle the Bible, because a lot of times you'll get things like, oh, well, the Bible says pi equals three, when really it's giving a rough estimation. It's giving the circumference of a sphere as three cubits, which is an approximation of the tip of your finger to, the, to your elbow or from your wrist to your elbow, depending on the time and the place of, uh, of where they were defining a cubit, right? They're, they're not measuring it, you know, according to the, to the standard weights and measures that we have now, exacting down to the fraction of a millimeter. They just weren't trying to. They're just saying, okay, well, it's about three cubits around, so, you know, it's, a, you know, it's about three in, in radius. Hmm. Right, those those type of things. But people, you know, atheists will be up in arms and saying, "Oh, see, there, it doesn't know the basic mathematics of pi." You know, whatever. Uh, they, you know, there, there's the claim that dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago. Okay, well, that can be true by verification, replication, radiometric dating, volcanic eruptions, so on. Um, that the universe began with a big bang, right? We can understand this as being a true fact by a convergence of facts. Schirmer here makes a simple conflation uh, also of ontology with epistemology. Um, the, these, these things that, about the dinosaurs going extinct 65 million years ago and, and being true, you know, being able to verify by uh, replication, radiometric dating, all that kind of stuff, th those aren't truth makers. Right. Those are those are evidences he thinks we ought to use and accept to have a reasonable belief in a, in a conclusion. Right. Those are those are epistemic warrants if they're valid. Right. I know some of my young earth creation audience is going to be up in arms saying, yeah, you're giving him too much. My presuppositionalist brothers would be, oh, you're giving him too much. You're engaging. Whatever. Um, the point here is that even if we accept those things, those are those are features of, of epistemic warrant, right? The the ability to verify by by replication and radiometric dating of the date of uh, of fossils, for example, is not what makes the age of uh, of when the dinosaurs went extinct true, right? The, the, there's the ontological fact of what happened and how long ago it happened to the dinosaurs, and then there's the evidences we use as epistemic warrant for something. Shermer is conflating these two things. He's saying, he's trying to say these things, they're, they're true because of the, adv the advance of science, um, which is just, um, which is just a, a blurring of ontology with epistemology. He then moves into this issue of negative truth or null hypotheses. And he says, the burden is actually on the miracle claimant. It's not on the skeptic. Um, so that so that the burden of proof for a miracle falls on the person who's claiming that the miracle has happened and it doesn't fall in any way on the skeptic. That's true and false. 
the the answer if you know if that's true is yes and no uh, if the skeptic has set a standard for knowing they have a burden to defend that standard of knowing that is the the yes there is a burden to defend the miracle but if the atheist is saying well the only way we can know if something is true if there was a miracle if there was a fact of history is and sets up this framework for epistemology they actually have a war they they have a burden to warrant that epistemology they need to be able to defend it that in the in these types of battles over burden of proof there's there's not a there's not a oh well if you're a theist you exclusively carry the burden of proof the entire conversation no matter what happens that's just not how burden of proof happens uh mitch stokes uh in, in his book how to be an atheist uh, gives this example uh, of being a, the difference between a sober skeptic and a hyper skepticism, uh, and, are, and, and he says that they're often equivocated. And, and here, Shermer um, uh, is often called out uh, by Stokes uh, by name for committing this error between being a sober skeptic and a hyper skeptic. Because what 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 Shermer does is he wants to say, okay, well, we can be a, a sober skeptic. We can we can try to follow the evidence where it leads. And he presents that as if that that kind of very that kind of very minimal kind of claim of a, of a skeptic is the only thing that he's doing when really in the background he's actually acting as a hyper skeptic where where he's setting up this entire epistemology this entire unfalsifiable epistemology and saying I don't even have to warrant that I don't have a burden for that I can I can set up this whole framework of epistemology in which you have to play on my field and I have no burden to say why you have to play on that field. Uh, so, so Stokes calls him out on, on often equivocating between uh, sober skeptic, what, what Stokes calls sober skepticism and hyper skepticism. Um, there's another issue that comes up in dealing with uh, if Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, the, the claim Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, which is a historical claim, and Christ died for my sins, which is a theological claim. Shermer claims that the former can be shown to be plausible by, by, by kind of a historical, historiographic method. We, we can show it plausible, even though um, he gives an, a, a nod to mythicism, which we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, it, we can't, it's, it's possible for us to show it's plausible by historic methods that there was a historical Jesus who died by crucifixion, but that the latter, the theological claim, can never be proven uh, and, and it, it can never be proven or falsified, and so therefore it's a meaningless statement, right? Even he's really falling back on the kind of logical positivism that, that went out of fashion decades ago, um, which has really plagued the new atheist movement for a long time. This has been a common criticism. R and Ra hates it, but their epistemology, their scientism, really just is neological positivism, um, and they just they they just really don't like that. But they really can't give any conceptual differences between them and Shermer again shows this here. Uh, he says, uh, quote, the proposition that Jesus died for our sins, by contrast, is a faith-based claim with no purchase on valid knowledge. It cannot be tested or falsified. It cannot be confirmed. It can only believe, be believed or disbelieved based on faith or the lack thereof, end quote. Now, there's a couple of problems with this. First, it assumes a naturalistic methodology of history. Um, right. This, this agrees with Bart Ehrman that history cannot show non-natural facts, right? Something that Ehrman has actually started to change his mind on, by the way. We've seen some movement in that direction. It, 
it ignores the work of scholars like like Craig Keener, Daryl Bach, and a, and a ton others. In fact, there's there's a broad movement away from this view um, in in nearly every academic circle. Historians and philosophers of historian are are all kind of actually moving in the direction away from this claim that history has no uh, that historiography has, has no way to defend kind of these these uh, these value claims or religious claims or miracle claims um, there, there's a move in the opposite direction um, that, that that's starting up it's also his claim is just too simplistic uh, it ignores how webs of data can demonstrate other claims right so it it ignores that if you have you know uh, you know fulfilled prophecy claims if you have historiographic claims showing uh, that Jesus said that he would die and why he would die and when he died uh, that he would that he would raise from the dead and then you get all those the the you know I, I I'm not going to here give that that whole case for the resurrection but but the the apologist who does make those cases say okay well, we have this web of evidence when you try to come with a, with an all-encompassing abductive explanation for all of that um, miracle is a perfectly valid explanation especially if it's the only one that properly explains all of that all of that information and so uh, he, he Shermer's here claims here are just simply too simplistic it ignores all of that uh, all of how the, how webs of data can demonstrate um, theological facts uh, it also commits the error like I said of scientism and it operates Again, he gives the, the, the off-problematic definition of faith as just being belief without evidence, right? Um, which atheists love to do. I did a whole episode on this uh, called Faith and the Atheists Who Love Her, uh, dealing with these really just, um, uh, uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're prats, their points refuted a thousand times, uh, where they try to say, oh, well, the, you know, faith just is, right? It just is belief without evidence. Or they'll say, well, you know, that, that you know, uh, you, you have to believe the evidence. That's why they call it faith. Well, I mean, no, that, that, that's not how any biblical Christian defines faith. Again, that's not our concept. You're engaging in a straw man. That might be a definition of faith. Right, I can I can agree that that's a definition of, of faith. That's a that's a that's a usage of it, right? Because because uh, word meanings are are actually uh, word, words aren't objective things. Um, meanings can evolve and grow over time. It's actually based on usage and how people use them. That's how things get uh, entered into the dictionary. Dictionary is not actually uh, organically defining the word for us and telling us how to use it. A dictionary is actually a catalog of how a word is being used or has been used in the past uh, in, in, in mass market publications. Um, and so when, when we're dealing with, uh, with faith here, I'm perfectly happy to say that, that faith as defined as a belief apart from evidence um, or something along the lines, that's a usage. Atheists use it that way all the time. They use it in print. They use it all over the place. Great. That's, that's one usage of the term faith. But if you're going to be engaging with, with biblical Christianity and you're going to be saying, well, you're going to be attacking our position, you need to attack our concepts and how we define our terms. Uh, otherwise, you're just, again, you're just uh, tilting at windmills. Um, uh, he also then uh, tries to defend his claim by appealing to Hume again, as if Hume was just the apex of his thought. Like, like when when Shermer has been studying uh, skepticism and stuff, he, he he started reading Hume, and that was just his glass ceiling, right? He he never he he never got out of. Uh, out of uh, the you know the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, he just he, he read Hume, stopped there, hasn't read any of the criticism, any of the advancements, anything beyond that. 
um, you know, hasn't read anything by the reformed epistemologists, haven't read anything by uh, the Vantilians, haven't read anything by any idealists, haven't read anything, you know, any of the critiques of Hume. Right? There, there's all these, there's all these problems um, that arise, and, and he basically just says, hey, you know, Hume, Hume's the man, uh, just as Hume said, so, so I thinketh. Um, and and that, that creates problems for his position. Uh, he then claims the principle of proportionality demands extraordinary evidence for extraordinary claims. Um, that's his, his claim. Um, he, he says that it's the principle of proportionality. That's not what the principle of proportionality is. Uh, it's a misuse. Uh, it's actually a misunderstanding and a misuse of the principle. The, the, the principle of proportionality is a moral principle um, that there should be a reasonable balance between uh, human activity and its consequences. It's usually employed in discussions of, of penalties for criminal actions. <coughs> and so a principle of proportionality basically says, hey, you know, the, the punishment should fit the crime. It's not actually, the principle of proportionality has nothing to do with evidentiary standards. Um, so I don't actually know where he draws that from. It just, it just has nothing to do with, with evidential standards or, or, um, epistemological systems. So he's really kind of pulling that out of, out of thin air. So the, it, 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 the principle of proportionality just that makes no such demands. It does, it just doesn't make the demand that extraordinary evidence uh, is needed for extraordinary claims. Um, the other problem is that extraordinary, the term, is, is ironically a way to introduce subjectivity uh, as a standard in, in, into the attempt to objectify uh, epistemology along scientific grounds. Let me say what I mean by that. Something being extraordinary uh, is a subjective concept, right? What's extraordinary to one person might be entirely mundane to another. Um, the, the, the claim that something is extraordinary just is a subjective um, evaluative adjective, um, and so and so, what it is when he's trying to establish, you know, this objective science-based epistemology. We are facts and evidence. Um, what he's actually doing is he's saying, okay, well, our epistemology now has this standard that's entirely subjective. It's entirely apart from facts and evidence, right? So you have to have uh, extraordinary evidence. So you have to have this subjectively objective thing. Um, which just is is to speak out of both sides of the mouth um, with with regards to to what type of evidence or evidential standards we should require for things. Um, moving on, Shermer, Shermer and Company, Shermer et al. Uh, also seem to confuse warrant and justification <coughs> with the ability to demonstrate a claim to others, um, as if as if it were a demonstrable fact that if if I couldn't meet the standard. Um, uh, public verification that I therefore equally have not vet, met a viable standard of, uh, of, of personal warrant, of epistemic warrant. Um, and that just flatly isn't the case. I mean, ever since the work of Alvin Planning, I mean, going back to, gosh, the 70s, uh, no one really thinks this way uh, about warrant and belief. Um, we, we, we very clearly have, uh, have things that we, we are warranted in rational belief for ourselves, even if we're not able to demonstrate them in, in a kind of rigorous scientific evidentiary way for others. Just because someone may not be able to individually or corporately, um, demonstrate something to others doesn't mean they're unreasonable or, or have no warrant for believing something themselves. Um, I, I, you know, I, right now, um, 
for the next five seconds, I'm going to have a private thought to myself. Okay. I have no way of empirically demonstrating to you what that private thought was, right? You'd have to take my word for it. There's no direct evidence of what that private thought was, but I know what it was. I have first-person experience of it. Uh, I have a properly basic belief of what I just thought. I'm completely warranted to have a belief about what I was thinking during that five-second period, even though there's no possible way I could give a rigorous scientific you know, empirically uh, evidenced case for it to anybody else, right? It, it, so it's just it's just asininely false to to try to make the standard <coughs> that in order uh, for me to have warrant or be able to reason for something, I need to meet the same standard that I would uh, to demonstrate something to someone else. Um, moving moving on, um, billions and billions uh, have lived. Uh, and not been raised from the dead. Um, now, we shouldn't believe that one has been raised without extraordinary evidence, right? Um, they, 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 they want us to say, look, you know, all, all of these billions of people, they, they've, never they've never been raised from, from, from the dead. Um, so therefore, if one was raised from the dead, in order to believe that, you have to be able to present other people extraordinary evidence. Now, will they allow such, the, the question is, are, are they going to allow such bald, probabilistic thinking when it comes to teleology, fine-tuning, abiogenesis, things, things like that, where in 100% of the cases of specified complexity, of non-trivial, non-random, informative patterns, we know for a fact um, that, that in all, every analogous case, they are the product of intentionality in mind. Every single analogous case, right? So when we're dealing with something <coughs> that has specified complexity of information that has a teleological outcome, right? And, and, and the probability of it happening naturalistically is, is in the orders of, you know, one times 10 to the hundredth power, you know, so, so on and so forth. Um, the, these types of things, which is just astronomical. I mean, the, 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 the complexity of a book being written is not even that high. Like, you, I mean, the, the 600 page book that I'm reviewing, the probability of it happening, uh, randomly by strokes of a keyboard isn't even that high. Um, so, so in every analogous case, we have these, we universally understand them as, as products of, of, of mind, uh, products of intentionality. So the question is, we have one case example um, where, where we don't have the direct knowledge of the cause, but it's uncalculably more fine-tuned, more specified, has more complex information, has broader range uh, teleology. Um, why in that case uh, should we take the improbability as a reason to reject the universal explanation we take otherwise. Are they going to allow that same type of argumentation um, that they are saying that they deny, right? I mean, I mean, at this point, the claim that all of that can happen by chance at random from nothing, that's the extraordinary claim. And you need extraordinary evidence in order to demonstrate that if we're going to follow their uh, if we're going to follow their standard of, of extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So the, the question is, when the shoe is on the other foot, are they going to be singing the same song? Uh, and I really don't think so. Um, so, you know, what Shermer gives, Shermer takes away. He's entirely inconsistent on things like this. Um, he also goes into, um, uh, 
what I call narrative maybes. Um, so when dealing with with Jesus, and Jesus for example, um, you know he, he starts getting into to, to kind of mythicist grounds. He says, okay, well. Well, maybe the apostles only meant the, the feelings of Jesus being present, or maybe uh, their testimony was altered over decades, or maybe the original reports didn't include resurrection and this was added later. Right? He gives all the, he gives these he gives these narrative maybes about you know maybe maybe this is why um, you know uh, the, the the texts are the way they are to try to overcome some of the evidence of the res- resurrection. The problem is that these maybes ignore basic historical facts. They, they often reveal a complete lack of knowledge on, on just simple scholarship of, of, of New Testament backgrounds, of textual studies, uh, of, of early church history. It ignores that inventing merely conceptually possible alternatives to a thesis doesn't mean that they're actually plausible rival theses. Right? This is the same problem that the flying spaghetti monster has. Right? Just because you can say, um, you know, if, if, if an event happens and I don't know why it happens, Someone gives a perfectly plausible event, you know, explanation uh, for for why that thing happens. I can't go well, you know. You can't say that because maybe aliens, right? That the the, the maybe aliens is not a valid, right? It, all you're doing is say, well, is that logically possible? Sure, fine, but is it a plausible alternative? No, it doesn't. It doesn't function as a defeater for the claim whatsoever. People like Shermer think it does because remember their epistemology is that if if any if there's any possible naturalistic explanation, it's intrinsically more plausible, right? So for them, if they can think of any natural explanation, well, then it's a defeater for the supernatural one. The problem is, again, you're, you're dealing with question begging on the epistemology. They're, they're, they're asking you to hold an epistemic standard that you just shouldn't affirm or hold, and you have good reason, actually, to under, undermine and deny for the points that I pointed out uh, before. <coughs> um, Shermer then claims, quote, uh, the principle of proportionality also means we should prefer the more probable explanation over the less, which these alternatives surely are uh, again the problem that's just not what the principle of proportionality is uh, that's not what it is that's not what it entails um, but Shermer then uh, claims that Loftus's contribution to the following book argues that the resurrection fails such a standard and is a god of the gaps conclusion which is I mean it's a cute assertion uh, we'll you know we'll we'll see when we get to that chapter uh, Shermer says of, of Loftus's uh, section that is quote uh, the best explanation uh, Loftus ever uh, that, that that Shermer has ever read. End quote. And so we can assume if we dismantle it, then Shermer will abandon his skepticism of the resurrection. Right? Uh, I doubt it. Uh, he's been he, he he has a commitment to the conclusion. He's an atheist apologist. Uh, I mean he he that that's that's his defense for it. He would just say, okay, well, just because that argument falls to the wayside, I have all of these 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 other ones. Um, the, the, the God of the gaps, right? In, in time, all of these God of the gaps type, type arguments uh, for miracles will fail, and with them, the last epistemological justification for religious belief beyond blind faith. Perhaps this is why Jesus was silent when Pilate asked him, what is truth? Right? That's, that's Shermer's claim. <clears throat> There's a couple uh, problems here. First, uh, it's not a God of the gaps argument. Uh, 
Um, to give an abductive explanation for something is not a God of the gaps argument any, any more um, than giving a natural explanation for something like fine-tuning, something like the resurrection is not uh, a naturalistic God of the gaps. Um, ironically, uh, defending the, the circular epistemic standard um, that has been set actually is a naturalism of the gaps, right? It just, it just says something happened, anything natural is more plausible, therefore something natural has occurred. Um, that actually is uh, a naturalism of the, uh, of the gaps. Um, but, there, but there's other problems here. Again, uh, if faith just is belief without evidence, then, then why wouldn't faith always be blind, right? I always find it funny when they say, well, well faith, faith just is belief without evidence. Okay, then why do you always add the, 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 the adverb uh, blind or the adjective blind on it? Right? If faith already is blind, right, why add blind? Right? It's because you recognize that, that the adjective is needed to fully round out the concept, that we're not talking about blind faith. You're talking about blind faith, and to get that across, you need to, to add the adjective. Your, your, your lexology betrays, um, betrays the, the kind of question-begging nature of that redefinition. Um, it also shows this kind of <clears throat> silly handling of texts uh, by atheists. Now, do we think that Pilate was waxing philosophical and having some existential crisis to someone he almost certainly would have just thought was another Jewish upstart, you know, apocalyptic preacher. Right? He's not having some type of cathartic moment with someone that he really doesn't care if he lives or dies. Um, the question, what is truth in, in the passage, he's asking, he's asking, is what they're claiming of you true? Are you, have you claimed to be the king of the Jews, right? Is that the truth of the matter, right? He's not asking them philosophical, what is truth? No, he's, what, what, is, what is the truth? Are, are, are their claims about you true or are they not true? Are you innocent? Are you not innocent? Make a defense for yourself, man. Uh, the parallel in Mark 15, 2, 5 actually reveals this, right? In the parallel section, uh, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said it is so. The chief priests accused Jesus of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? So, so how many things are they accusing you of? That is, what's the truth here, Jesus? Why don't you speak up? Why don't you tell us? Again, he's not waxing philosophical here. But Jesus still made no reply. And so Pilate was amazed. Why? Because he thought, well, he's not, he's not amazed at the the, the philosophical, you know, uh, profundity of a silent answer. He's amazed because here's, here's a criminal that, that, that he can, that Pilate can easily just put to death at, at his own say so saying, look, I'm giving the opportunity to say is what they're saying true or not. And you don't answer. Okay. I, I mean, I, I, I'm amazed that you don't answer it. It's, it's not, it, it's not what a lot of people uh, think that it is. And, and this just, this goes to show that, that sure, that this is the kind of, of handling of passages um, that Shermer and other atheists um, commonly get themselves into. They don't actually deal with, with um, any of the commentaries, scholarship, original languages, which I'm not saying you have to, to understand a passage. But if you're going to try to be so hypercritical to say that, that something, you know, is contradictory or something is false or whatever it is, you need to deal with, with the best case for it. So you need to do a little bit of study, especially if you're going to go into print. So the first foot forward 
in the foreword is a very, very weak one. And, and it's likely, I, I'm sad to say I've read some of these other, you know, edited anthologies by Loftus. I, this is probably likely of what we should expect from the rest of the book. Um, it's very, very similar in, in, in tone um, and in depth of research and in depth of engagement with the opposing ideas uh, as all of his prior ones, which is uh, all pretty shallow. So uh, with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up on the foreword and we'll join you, uh, join you with me next time as we go through the introduction to the book. All right. Good night and God bless.